0: This is the BBC.
1: This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK.
2: BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts.
1: Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time.
0: There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello, Dogger, German Bight, Humber, Thames and Dover had no place in the Stone Age shipping forecasts as they were areas of land, not sea, and ideal habitats for human hunter-gatherers. The highest point, Dogger Bank, was the last to disappear perhaps 7,000 years ago as ice sheets melted and the sea levels rose and Stone Age residents took to the higher ground of Norfolk and the Netherlands. The submerged area is now known as Doggerland and at low tide on the North Sea coast you can still see traces of tree stumps left by its ancient forests. With me to discuss Doggerland are Carol Cotterill, marine geoscientist at the British Geological Survey, Rachel Beiner, lecturer in archaeology at the University of Southampton, and Vincent Gaffney, anniversary professor of landscape archaeology at the University of Bradford. Vince Gaffney, can you clarify what's the extent of this submerged area that was once land? at the lowest glacial stand
3: about 20,000 years ago the sea level was about 120 metres lower than it is today that meant that huge areas of of coastal plain today were actually dry land. Globally we're talking about an area perhaps the size of North America within Europe perhaps 20% of the area of Europe was actually lost as seas rose and Around Britain, in the area we now know as Dogland, but also including uh, the west coast of um, Liverpool Bay and um, Severn Estuary, for instance, perhaps an area as large as the United Kingdom itself was lost. Now, this area we know very little about, we're only just exploring the ex- actual extent, we are not entirely certain about. It. It's possible that, for instance, um we, we have believed that areas up to the um the the Norwegian trench or to the east of the Shetlands were, were dry land, but these may not have been so in in the run up to um inundation. Um it may be that um perhaps sixty, seventy thousand square kilometers were actually <coughs> dry land.
0: But for the sake of this program, our idea of Doggerland is the is sort of the space between a lot of the east coast and Europe. We're talking about that space there. Are we talking about, we call it Doggerland. Is it, some, uh, is it as big as Holland? I, can you give us an idea, some idea of the size of it?
3: It, it changed over time. I mean, as, the, as the seas rose after the last glaciation um, it became smaller. The area in which perhaps most people are concerned with, which is After about 10,000 BC, um, you know, the point at which people would have been able perhaps to walk from uh, Yorkshire to Denmark, we'd have been talking about 60,000, 70,000 square kilometres of dry
0: land. I know sixty or 70,000 kilometres means a lot to you. It doesn't mean a great deal to me. <laughs> if you say something like Denmark or the Netherlands, yeah, yeah, I, I'm yes. trying to get well, an idea for our listeners it, how big this was. Yeah.
3: Well, if, if, if the international standard for lost lands is um, approximately the Netherlands and a bit larger, that's about it.
0: That's about it, good. So we're back to the Netherlands a bit larger. Now, what was unique about this Doggerland area? Was anything unique about it? It's an area that is
3: interesting because it was at certainly habitable and inhabited it would have been most convenient that if perhaps we could forget about it as archaeologists because it's so difficult to get to but actually the landscape itself may well have been an optimal area for human habitation um, the, it may well have been an area certainly after 10,000 BC where the densities of populations were greatest the resources were greatest but the cultures that existed there we know very little about and therefore they are important
0: so, between about 10,000 BC and about 5,000 BC, can we talk in these enormous terms, uh, there was a place there, and you said it was uh, uh, actually, I think, in one sense, you said it could have been the heartland of uh, the economic heartland of that part of Europe.
3: I think it's prob- that wouldn't be hyperbole. Um, most of the areas around it, perhaps in Britain, which is how we, we write the history of Mesolith- the Mesolithic on the basis of the lands we knew well, um, they were the hinterland. The areas actually at sea, the coastal areas, which had the greatest resources—the fish, the, the birds, the wetlands—which are so productive—may well have had the greatest concentration of populations.
0: So these are the places most fertile for habitation. Right? Yes. Yeah. What um, there was a British there was Clement Reid, a British geologist, began to interest himself in this. About 1913. What took his interest? Why did he go there? Well, Clement
3: Reid's an, an, a very interesting person. And uh, he was born in the in the 1850s. He was a, a great nephew of um, Michael Faraday, a self-made man. He taught himself and got a job in the in the British Geological Survey. Um, he was interested in 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 Pliocene plants, paleo botany and the linkage between geology and climate so it, was, it wasn't surprising that he was attracted to to areas where you could see cli- climate change in action. He himself it's had, uh, had, had, he wasn't the first person but he was well aware of the fact that below high high water tides there were there appeared to be forests woodlands, stumps at least. These were often called Noah's Woods. They're obviously the results of biblical floods. And this caught his, his eye and inspired him to consider the problems of what they meant.
0: Was these reports from fishermen and sailors, these uh, these woods and so on, did that take him there? Did he see them for himself? I mean, how did he get involved in the first place?
3: Um, there had actually been reports of the, of these things for a long, a long time. There are historic quotes in the me- medieval period um, from the, the certainly the 16th, 17th century in, in England. Um, but throughout the 19th century, people had become aware of them and also the remains of fossil animals being trawled from the, um, the the North
0: Sea itself. Thank you very much. Rachel Banner, uh, a lot of the clues, as I implied, have come from fishing and later mm-hmm. from oil exploration, so well, let's stick to fishing with the trawlers. In the 1930s, the, there was a trawler called Colinda, uh, netted something which really pushed the research forward. Can you tell the listeners about that?
1: Yes, yeah, so this was, um, it was a Mesolithic a Mesolithic harpoon, um, and it came up from the motor vessel, Clinda, like you say, on the Lehman and Hour banks, which is just to the north of Norfolk. Um, this was important because it's a beautiful find, a beautiful yeah. artefact. And the first, probably the first reported archaeological artefact from these areas. And so it was important because it meant that the archaeologists at the time went from seeing these areas as marine, as purely sea, uh, to starting to engage with them in an archaeological way. So starting to think that we can, in fact, engage with these submerged terrestrial landscapes and start to ask more questions about these.
0: Can you tell us more about this harpoon?
1: Um, well, the harpoon dates from the Mesolithic period. Um, what which does is, that mean? It, it was a period that, that Vince really is, is concentrating on at the moment and it's in that last... We like
0: years, how many years?
1: years it's from, um, Nine, yeah, about 9,000 years ago. That'll do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> and um, this was within that last, most recent period of exposure. So what landscapes. was it made of and how long was it? Antler, I believe, Yeah. Um, Antler, I'm not sure how long it was. It's it's, um, a little bit younger than I'm used to dealing with. But, you know, I'd say probably... No, I'd be guessing. I think it's probably about 10, 15 centimetres or so.
0: Was this the first and most important of many tools that began to turn up there?
1: Yes, I think so. So, I mean, um, a lot has been trawled up. You mentioned fishing at the start. Um, And a lot has been trawled up from these areas, including uh, a, a vast amount of faunal remains, so animal bones, um, as well as stone tools, which have come up more recently through, through mostly through aggregate extraction um, and it's really for me uh, whilst the the Kalinda harpoon is, is amazing and is brilliant, these tools are very important because they tell us about the incredible time depth that's associated with these submerged landscapes so the story is is much longer than simply the last exposure of them after the last glaciation which as Vince mentioned was at its maximum about 20,000 years ago um, these actually stretch back the entire time we've had people living in Britain and northwest Europe which at the moment is about a million years ago based on current evidence from a cycle And Haysbury. These tours tell you about them. Yes, exactly. So the tools, predominantly the faunal remains, so we know that these landscapes were exposed repeatedly throughout that past million years. Um, we know that geologically. Um, we know that because we know that the landscapes were exposed um, from, from sediments, from coals. But also, in trawling up these bones, we can use the species to tell us about the, the date ranges, and that points to you know these being terrestrial at, at points well over half a million years ago. Stone tools are a bit trickier. They, t- they tend to be brought up through aggregate extraction rather than seeing them prolifically through trawling, um, probably because they slip through the gaps. Um, so we have a few areas where, where, where we've actually been able to investigate these stone tools, which tell us more specifically through typologies and dating of sediments about the, the time periods and areas that those are coming from as well.
0: Thank you. Uh, Carl Cottrell, the highest part of this landmass is uh, what we now know as Dogger Bank. What's that made of?
2: Dogger Bank, uh it was first noted in a geological paper in 1874 by a gentleman called Thomas Belt as a great dump of moraine rubbish, which basically means that it's the activity of ice streams and glaciers and ice sheets from the last ice age. And as they move across a landscape, predominantly coming from the north, but also from Britain, and Irish ice sheet as well, they scour up sediments sand, gravels and also bits of rock from everything that they move over they grind over it and sort of pulverise the underlying landscape and it travels with them it can travel on top of the ice it can travel inside the ice it can also travel underneath the ice and when the ice starts to come to its end point and sort of reach its terminus and go into a retreat phase all of this gets dumped out and left on the, left on the landscape as just layers of this glacial Um, till is what we often call it and this can happen over a number of times so over the last ice age the ice front came forward and moved back and forward and moved back and fluctuated across the landscape and every time it moved forward it would bulldoze all of this moraine rubbish that had been laid down beforehand and forming this big bank into a series of what we call thrust moraines
0: So we have this dogger bank, which is almost like a sort of a, a cap, a canopy over. Underneath that is the lost world of lakes, valleys, hills.
2: Yes. So it would have been a, a, quite a formidable landscape that would have been left at the, at the end of the last ice age. Um, some of these moraine systems are 50 to 60 metres high. They're 10 to 20 kilometres in width and they run for about 60 kilometres. So um, I work based in Edinburgh. One of these systems could easily have run all the way across Edinburgh, have been the size of the city. And so you're looking at a landscape that would have changed quite dramatically. Over the last Ice Age, for people to migrate into, with these great hills and these big valleys and channel systems running through it, and over time, the, as the seas came up and as the seas finally flooded this area, you've now got these marine sands that blanket this landscape and bury it. So it's it's like a hidden a hidden glimpse that we're starting to get a handle on now.
0: But are we are we saying about this doggerland that at a certain stage, uh, the east coast? we're sticking to this area I know Mm -hmm. it goes all over the place and as Vince pointed out at the beginning the east coast was joined to what we now call Europe Uh, and you just what it wasn't a bridge it was a continuation
2: that's what we believe based on the. Um, we look at something called bathymetry. So we look at the contours of the land and we strip off the younger landscapes and look at what was lying beneath. And then, as Vince mentioned, if you take the sea level drop and you lower it by 120 metres, you can start to see what would have been exposed land. And there was this connection.
0: So, in that case, uh, um, let's go to the UK or whatever everyone was an archipelago or not an island?
2: Yes. Well, it would have been part of the landmass. It would have been part of, part of mainland Europe. It would so they'd be connected. trekking
0: backwards and forwards to find the most habitable places.
2: They could well have done, yes. Yeah. Um, and at the height of the Ice Age, you could also have walked from Edinburgh to Oslo across the ice.
0: Okay, Vince, can we now get down to more particulars about this landscape under this dogger bank under these great sand heaps and so on uh, and it sounds almost a fantastical world because you can still find what do you tell us what you can find?
3: Well, the most interesting thing about this is as an archaeologist we we rely on 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 the kindness of strangers to get our information we 've we 've been told. Um, um, uh, already by Rachel, that much of the the actual cultural material we get from trawling troll, it 's been chance finds, however, vast amounts of other w- activities have been carried out in the in the North Sea, um, oil and gas exploration, aggregate extraction, most of our aggregates will come from from the sea, more recently wind farms. Uh, some of the largest wind farms in the world are, are now out in the sea and on the Dogger Bank itself, and all of these the, these activities have given us information. Archaeologists could never have afforded to look at this area to any extent. However, particularly so what is the
0: information that's important partic- to you?
3: For me per- personally. The, the the most important information has been the release of the huge seismic data sets that were collected for oil and gas exploration in the North Sea. These were collected at uh, the cost of hundreds of millions of dollars and they stretch over tens of thousands of col- square kilometres within the North Sea. And They allow us, just like radar on land, to look at essentially three-dimensional maps of, of the area under the sea. Uh, we've been Able to take um, the, this data and strip it off, and we've been able to to um, identify r- rivers running across across the sea. Hon- thousands of kilometers of streams and rivers dozens of lakes in the center of the of of the um, North Sea is 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 the the, out, the outer silver pit a great big deep a marine deep which would have been a, a lake for most of, it, of this time a very important feature of course a water feature of that sort and of course hills valleys we've been able to reconstruct currently over more than forty three thousand square kilometres, which is about the area of the Netherlands. Um, um, essentially a, a a the basis of, of, of a prehistoric landscape. Now up until what this is it
0: you use prehistoric in what way what distinguishes a prehistoric landscape?
3: Well, in technical terms, a prehistoric landscape is that top, which is before history. <laughs> right, okay. However, however, in this case, it is it is very very different, and it is worth noticing uh, noting this about it. These landscapes are are associated with the Mesolithic. They are about nine and a half thousand to about four thousand BC. Right now, during that period. The whole of the land, the the world changed. The shape of the world changed. By the be- at the beginning of the period, it was not a land we recognised. During the as the waters rose, not only that did that happen. Temperatures rose, so we moved from a period of tundra, you know, glacial conditions, right through to the mixed um, deciduous forests that we know today. And also during that period. We, we run the, the, it's a period of hunter-gatherers at the beginning, the last, the longest, most successful economic period in our, in, in, in human history. But at the end, um, farming is being introduced in this area. It's very, very different. And this is a part that we know nothing about. It's a big hole in the pulu mint of um, the archaeology of Europe, which we do not know about and we need to.
0: But when you tick off the, th- the changes that happened in those 5,000 years, they're enormous. Uh, 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 a landmass the size of India disappeared and so on.
3: In, in, certainly, in Southeast Asia, that yeah. certainly it happened in the area of the Sunda Straits. These, and they're all associated with important um, events. In, in In Northwest Europe, of course, we're looking at the colonization. It's not a discovery; it's a rediscovery of this land. There were people out there, and getting to, and we we have essentially constructed an archaeology of Northwest Europe by conveniently forgetting or ignoring what was in the middle of it, which might have been the most productive during this
1: period.
0: Rachel, you, part of your research is you dive yeah. into these into these places. Uh, very, very murky, usually, actually. expect. Very well, uh,
1: OK, so I have to admit, I have had the um, visibility so bad that you can't see your hand in front of your face. But um, at the moment, I'm working up at Haysborough, the very early site, dates to about eight hundred, nine hundred thousand 900,000 years.
0: So what do you find there?
1: Well, there, we can find more, because the visibility is lovely. So we have quite a lot of... Um, we can see quite far. Um, we're looking for the extensions of these very early sites that have been found on the coast underwater. So Clement Reed actually mentioned he was looking in this area and he mentioned himself um, the fact that things were getting washed up on beaches. And we've been working with, with a lot of that material recently, so stone tools as well as animal remains. I'm trying to locate some of these sites animals so the animals um, things like rhinoceroses hippos as well um, some giant deer species um different species of mammoth, of elephant um, that will change depending on whether it's a warmer period or a cooler period so in the warmer periods you might have straight tusked elephants whereas in the, the cooler periods well, I mean there's quite a lot of overlap really at those stages, but lots of animals that you wouldn't recognise today so it's, it's, it's incredible to work with them um, as well as carnivore species too, so you have things like hyenas as well, um, and we see obviously human exploitation of these um, so underwater we're using the finds of these on the beaches and understanding of the sediment transport to try to pinpoint areas of seabed where we think we might be able to find these deposits. Um, Last year was the first time we had a good amount of time to do this, so we got two weeks to go diving, which is fantastic. And we did start to find exposures of these really early deposits that link to these archaeological sites. Um, So some of them are incredibly organic rich. The entire kind of suite of deposits uh, tells us tons of information about the environments at the time so we've been able to survey and sample and hopefully go back soon and, and continue searching for the archaeology within those deposits.
0: So gradually I'm um, up. Carol Cottrell what sort of map is now emerging? Um, Vince has talked about his research we, we've heard from Rachel her research what, what's now emerging? Because it seems as if it's a fast move forward in the last few years from people like your three selves
2: It, it is an incredible leap forward um, Certainly the data that we have been working on on Dogger Bank, um, if you overlay the wind farm area, I'm looking predominantly at wind farm data, if you overlay that on its sort of southwesternmost tip would be around the Solent in Hampshire and its northeasternmost tip would stretch up to the Norfolk coast and you can get the whole of the M25 and London inside this area. So it's a massive area. And I'm using the seismic that Vince mentioned, so using sound to image beneath the seabed and see certain so horizons. So how do you do that? So we use a, um, a sound source that is towed from a vessel and then we have a series of microphones or hydrophones that are streamed behind the vessel. And where you get a change in the density of the sediment, so for example moving from a sand into a clay, your sound will reflect off it. It's a bit like echo sound. So what does that give you? So that gives us... Um, a map of what we call horizons. So we know that there is a change there for some reason. It could be a change in the type of sediment. It could be a change in how dense the sediments are. So if ice has sat on something and compressed it versus if ice hasn't been there, we'll get a reflection. But you start to build up these maps of these buried landscapes. And we also go out and we take core material. So I have 96 effective needles, I guess, in this big area in this big landscape but it gives me actual material to look from and work from so we found evidence of peats there we found evidence of swamp plants and ferns and bog plants. We found evidence of birch trees. We found pollens that are representative of forests. And they all sit at certain levels within our core. And you can start to piece together how the actual environment changed and how the landscape changed. And from that, um, people like Vince and Rachel can then put on the story of where people might have moved to and how they migrated.
0: did its best... Can you give the listeners some idea of what the environment was like over a few thousand years, between 9,000 and 5,000? It's a big ask, but can you have a go?
2: I can have a go. Um, So, again, as Vince mentioned, we would have started off with tundra. So we're looking at something like Siberia, as you see it today, the northern Siberian. So there would have been an area that would have frozen in winter, there would have been quite harsh winters, you would have had permafrost, potentially down tens of metres, you wouldn't have been able to dig into the ground with snow cover and ice and strong winds coming down from the north. But in summer you would get thawing and so in any sort of valleys you might have had temporary lakes forming, nice quiet areas. And then the ice moves further away, the global temperature starts to warm up, and you start to get tree species coming in, and you start to get swamp plants coming in, and the sort of first greenery coming back into the landscape as it sort of wakes up from this freezer environment. And so that moves on, then, and you start to get uh, rivers and channels being cut through the landscape, as the all the meltwater from these melting glaciers starts coming down through this system. So you would have got braided channels and river systems coming, with plants and animals starting to flourish so along those. So the plants, those. the animals,
0: and then the humans.
2: I'm going to look to the uh, <laughs> to the other experts in the room but that is what we are surmising yes i mean that would would make sense from a climate point of view um but you then go into an air, into a, an environment where you've got rapidly changing shorelines so you're moving from something that was part of a big landmass to something that is becoming increasingly isolated but you would get beaches and lagoons and sort of you know gravel beaches sand beaches the kind of lagoons that we see today along our our current coastline forming until finally the island is completely submerged and it becomes a marine environment
0: Thank you very much. You flinch when I ask you about humans. Do you flinch, Vince? <laughs> um,
3: absolutely. Um, th- this must be one of the few archaeological areas of, of interest where you, you're, you're essentially defined by what you don't know. The problem, uh, Rachel said, at the edges we can see some things, um, but in the centre of, uh, of um, the Dog- Dogger Land, we have no evidence. Or until recently, we have had no evidence. Well, Everything what's the has recent
0: been, evidence then? The,
3: the most recent evidence was um, was um, several flints which came from prospecting, looking for actual um, stratigraphy, which um, which which might contain cultural evidence. Yes. But up till now, um, you can you cannot work in the, in the North Sea in a, in a, in, a, in a normal way. Most of our ideas about these areas have come from the sides um, settlements um, like Bouldnor Cliff on the south of Britain, which is. Britain's only real submerged Mesolithic settlement. That's six thousand BC. We're talking for three thousand years earlier. We do have exceptional sites. Starcar in, in, in Yorkshire is one of them, which which is which is significant because even at at about eight and a half thousand BC, very early in the in the in the Mesolithic, it has a, it has a house, the earliest of houses, but we have to extrapolate this into the area of the North Sea. Carl, you want to come in?
2: Well, I was just I was just going to back Vince up on how difficult this is with a lot of the core material that we've obtained. You can use different forms of dating to find out how old something is, but when when you impose that onto the picture of ice moving material backwards and forwards and rocking it up and messing it up, and you then think about the impact of the sea coming up and eroding things away we might be able to get dates for certain plant species that we found but we don't know whether they're in situ so are they in the place where they were initially laid down, so is that a true date for that depth? So a lot of this is trying to get lots of puzzle pieces and put them together with your your sort of best expert guesswork I guess.
0: But pursuing the human, uh, Rachel Biner, mm-hmm. humans are the Stone Age men and women and, yeah. and so on how far do you get with your diving discoveries and, and the tools that you're uh, I'm about to say on Earth, I suppose Unearthed, you could say.
1: Yeah. You? <laughs> well, actually, so I sit the the opposite end to Vince. So um, where Vince is working in the Mesolithic, that most recent period of exposure, I'm working at just under a million years or so. So somewhere around eight hundred, nine hundred thousand years are the deposits that I'm looking for. And at this point, um, the the landscapes again were exposed, so you could have walked from Britain over to the coast of Holland. Um, so it's it, it's it's kind of demonstrating the fact that that while we talk about these landscapes generally speaking in a more in a more recent way, recent to us I suppose recent to geologists um, within the past twenty thousand years you know they have been there repeatedly over the past million years and so the occupation that we see in Britain would have been associated with these landscapes almost almost the entire time we had people here we had these landscapes forming.
3: Then. It's, it's important that we realize that these dramatic changes aren't just over the the longer term even in the period that we're talking about in the Mesolithic from about nine and a half to about five thousand BC these events are not linear the 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 inundation starts very very rapidly after the after uh, after the glacial period it's probably up to 12 14 millimeters a year at that point which is extremely rapid and it decreases in the in in the Mesolithic period but it's not linear there are things which happen there are cold snaps, glaciers move forward things become cold quite dramatically in some cases the Mesolithic itself, the Holocene starts after a very cold period and about at 8.2 killer years, There's a ve- an event six thousand two hundred BC. Yes, six thousand two hundred BC, eight thousand two hundred years ago, out up in the in the, in the the Americas, the Laurentide uh, ice sheet start to collapse. Lake Agassiz. Um, and 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 other lakes flew into these mega ice 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 lakes. Flew into the North Sea. They cause a collapse in in, in temperature at that point and a rapid rise in sea level, perhaps half a meter to one w- point two two meters at this point. In how so long? In in a very short What's amount very of time, short years, time. Years years we're talking about. And that's Ten a global years? event. Well, the the actual eight point two kilia goes over sixty years, mm. but its actual event is longer than that. However, the point about this is there's major variation during these times? People are adapting to the move. I don't believe they're moving off off the area at this point in time. But the these, these niches change. It's a very it's a very dynamic landscape. It's it's not linear.
2: Carl, you want to come in? No, just again, supporting what Vince is saying from the, the data that we've got from Dogger Bank, there is something that forms that we call a ravinement surface. So when your sea level starts coming back in and you have your wave base starting to erode away some material, you can sometimes get this very hardened, sort of cemented surface that forms, which is one of these surfaces that provides a really nice, bright echo and return from our sound source when we put it in the water and we've noticed that we've mapped at least six of these across the southern part of Dogger Bank so that would suggest that the sea tried to rise or the sea level rose partially at least six times before falling back again, before coming back in again so sort of backing up this, this um, theory that there were these, these rapid changes in climate before everything finally stabilised
0: I'm still in pursuit of stone Age man bins. Can you help me when did he have you have you any idea now with rachel's discoveries and with more, more that you're finding from the stuff that's coming up from the North Sea drilling the wind farm and all the rest of it? Any idea when was in what numbers um
3: well it is very, it is genuinely very difficult to say, say that, um, say that exactly. But we're talking about thousands of people. This must have been one of the densest settle, settled settled areas. Um, and the problem about why, about why this, must it have been simply because of the resource rich richness of uh, of the coastlines in particular. When when we see coasts and remember we don't see stuff because the coasts are underwater. When we do see coasts, generally, for instance, Gold Cliff in the Seven S. 6,000 years ago you see the footprints of, of people everywhere, families, children grandparents probably all running across the following deer prints these areas are are extremely important they, are, they may also hold types of cultures we can't see on land because they were specific to the North Sea and there are, there is some good evidence for that particularly in relationship to the appearance of houses in Britain
0: Rachel, you want to come
3: in?
1: Yeah, I wanted to say, um, this is something that's really interesting for for us as as Paleolithic archaeologists, so people that work further back in time, because you do see this in the Mesolithic, and it's probably the first time, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that that we think really there's probably continuous occupation of Britain. So when we look further back, when we have these landscapes, um, we don't think we have continuous population. We think the population sizes were quite small. So the archaeological visibility is very difficult. Furthermore, the the further back we go, the deposits we're dealing with are, are more and more fragmented, so it becomes incredibly challenging. But this idea that these coastal landscapes could have been really highly productive and very attractive to these people is something that um, archaeologists that work in the Paleolithic are often asking themselves. So one of the the key things, I suppose, is that we're looking for in these submerged landscapes and which we kind of have the edges of at Haysborough is those is that occupation of those coastal landscapes so that we can start talking about whether this was something that was true throughout the history of, of just our species or if it went before that, if this was about our ancestors as well, if there's something to do with the, the productivity of these environments that makes them attractive for occupation throughout, throughout the entire period of occupation, really.
0: You're suggesting a difference there, Vince, from anything we know, that we know about now. Have you any, have you, can you give us a clue to the difference?
3: Well, there, there, there are hints. Uh, there are, for instance, at a, at a period from about 8,500 to 7,500, we, we find houses. In the Mesolithic. What sort of houses? Quite significant. The most, the best known, perhaps, is um, is the house at Howick, which is on the uh, on um, the coast of Northumberland. Coincidentally, at the point where the where the, it, the the land rises north and sinks to the south, its a point of stability, where we where um, a a large, probably turf-coloured house built uh, constructed over a pit, lasted for several hundred years. So that meant generations of people lived in this. Now, houses are interesting because they, they, they're not just places to live. They're statements about where you live as well. And these, there seems to be a period when they, when they start to appear at around, i say, post 8,500 BC. Now, some people have suggested that this may even be the result of people coming off the North Sea Plain onto the land. There's there's also at about 8.400 a change in technology as well at that point. What's (laughs) that? There's a a move from so-called broad blade to narrow blade to Stone tool, tools, microliths are the um, are the are the the key tool these of the Mesolithic. These small these small um, um, flints, which may be used as composite tools, set into 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 wood, either as things like arrows, but also scrapers, perhaps for grating grating vegetable stuffs so, up. And that, and you never forget how productive these are, areas are, are at times. But there is there is at least another point <coughs> that we should we should be considering that um, what we may be seeing is the settlement pattern of the North Sea. This highly productive area, where you may see semi-sedentary occupation, and um, because the idea, you know, the idea that that the past is short, brutish, and nasty, and you've got people wandering around, sometimes for no apparent reason, as far as you can see, but um, is is almost certainly not the case. Some of these areas may be productive enough that people are able to stay for lengthy periods of time. Social events occur, um, and so ha- for instance, housing may be a f- reflection mm-hmm. of social.
0: Um, but you give ca- it, you give us a tremendous. Uh, uh, distinction, you say this may may have been one of the most productive economic areas in Northwest Europe. I think there's all, there, there, there's very little doubt about that. But the problem is,
3: how do you get the evidence? Now we are doing, in, in well, my, okay. own, my own in my own research, we we're we we do, doing something slightly di- different. It's very difficult to find things in a in a systematic manner. If you drop a core in a, a four inch core into the middle of the North Sea, finding something is difficult. What we're doing is dropping cores down river valleys because essentially you go back in time as you go down the river, river valleys. So you can start to recreate the, the landscape more productively then. What you then do, once you've got both the topography, once you've got the vegetation, you can then look at places where they are likely to be um, uh, both productive and, la- and 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 settlement may occur, and actually that's why, with the first in the first two weeks of actually prospecting for tools on the basis of what we knew, l- or l- evidence of human activity, we found lithics within the North Sea. Nobody has ever done that before.
0: Everything else is a chance find.
1: Mm, that is true. Yeah, we're very reliant on chance.
0: Carl, um, can we do a do we have? any evidence for what happened when the land submerged? was submerged? Did the people, did it, over a period of time, did they gradually walk away and go to come here or there or somewhere else?
2: We don't have, um, well I guess my short answer would be no, not really. Um, the Certainly most of my work is concentrated actually on Dogger Bank on this high. And unfortunately there's very little surface sediments that could have retained any evidence of what happened to people as the as the Level rows, and so what we 're what we 're finding are just very thin veneers of sand there with no artifacts remaining at all so from From the research that i 'm doing, we see um, the landscape where possibly people thrived, certainly there was the vegetation there, the streams, the channels, but we don 't see anything after the the landscape flooded it 's also I think quite interesting when you think
1: about these questions um, in terms of how people would have responded to this so Um, again sometimes with archaeology particularly the further back we go it's hard to think about the social nature of people but one of the interesting things about the sea level rise and again the further back you go the harder it gets to talk about but we can use these earlier these young these these more recent periods rather as a kind of proxy to think about this and what what I love is that when you look at these reconstructions of the changes to the landscapes in the Southern North Sea from about what 12,000 years onwards, um, in quite, quite high resolution, so in, you know, in 500 year kind of time intervals, you don't just see the sea rapidly moving in towards the land like it's been it's been it's been referred to earlier i think that you you know this changes it's incredibly dynamic so you you may get the sea moving in in one place but you get another area forming islands the waterways would have changed Um, the productivity of these environments would have changed you would get wetlands forming and all of this kind of changes the way that people would have seen these landscapes so where we see sea level rise is something that's very negative and terrifying because we're very sedentary and we have really high population densities In the past, where those two things weren't quite so strong, perhaps, this potentially would have, I mean, it would have had, um, it could have been catastrophic at points, perhaps. But generally speaking, this would have been a slow process that would have just changed the affordances of these areas. So it's not necessarily something to be seen in a negative light.
0: What have you found that you most want to follow up, Vince? Well, personally,
3: after the past fifty you know over the past fifty or sixty years um people have been trawling up um artifacts around a place called the Brown Bank, which is about forty kilometers from the, the 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 dutch within the Dutch sector of the north sea um This is remarkable because it is clear that there is a settlement out there, and not only that um you've got both material which is clearly of Mesolithic date but also Neolithic material. There's a type of axe called a Mikkelsberg axe, four two hundred three and a half, I think, um, which several of which uh, come from this area. Now, one, if we're going to find a, a settlement in the in the North Sea our bet in the heart, heart of the North Sea, our best bet is probably there. But it's interesting because this area probably retained some sort of significance during the the Neolithic period as well. So, you, you know, the awareness of um, the, 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 the loss of land and potentially areas of settlement may still may still occur in these areas.
0: Carol, um, how did the disappearance of Dogland affect the European
2: Peninsula of Britain. Oh, that's that's quite a tough one. Um, I don't. From uh, from my view, working as a geologist, what it has done is it has preserved a landscape for us to go back and investigate it's it's a time capsule it's a landscape that hasn't been modified by man it hasn't had infrastructure built on it it hasn't had its history destroyed so it's actually preserved this unique history for us to be able to go back and investigate and i think that's the importance
0: Well, thank you very much, Carl Cottrell, Rachel Bino and Vince Gaffney. Next week, it's the Spanish poet and playwright Lorca, author of Blood Wedding, Yama, and the House of Bernardo Alba, murdered by nationalists at the start of the Spanish Civil War. Thank you for listening.
1: And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests.
0: What What did we miss out? Any big things we missed out? Well, probably a lot. Well, let's start with you, Rachel. What did we miss out?
1: Well, I come from the Paleolithic perspective. So from my perspective, the importance of the importance of the these earlier landscapes in our understanding of, of human evolution in these really quite harsh northern latitudes. Um, but also I suppose the importance of the way we do that. Um, and the work that Vince does and the work that Carol does basically is kind of underpins everything, right? These big picture and the seismics and the geophysics something that we all use when we work in these areas. But I think that the search for archaeology, the small scale, the diving aspect of things, I find really important. And I know that's something that you are looking at with these areas offshore, possibly if the conditions allow. When we, exactly, when we get the right right stuff. Exactly. I know. yeah, exactly. To say, but but um, yeah, the ability to go down there to ground truth, to really see the deposits, to feel the deposits, to be able to think, I wonder how this relates to this, to understand the site itself. I think is one of the kind of really important. Ways that we need to also work with this archaeology because we would never consider doing a terrestrial excavation without having people investigating it if it was possible. So I think the same, if we can, goes for working Mm. offshore, um, being able to have a a broader understanding of the sites, the landscapes, rather than just a a keyhole approach. I suppose which we are often we often is often all we have to do really, all we can do.
2: I think for me, it's the. It's it's fascinating. This is, a, this is a big geological jigsaw puzzle that no one really knew was there until we started getting this data from, from the wind farms that are looking at developing the area, and they were kind enough to share their data with us. And so what we're seeing is a landscape that evolved because of ice, that had an impact on humans, that then became marine. Now now is this perfect archive for us, but even even now is having an impact on society and on people nowadays because we're trying to build renewable energy and wind, wind turbines off there and what we're finding is that the processes that happened have affected the sediments and the strength of them and so how we build on it how we construct on it but also we're finding sites that we need to preserve for sort of you know archaeologists and for historical use so we're working very closely with archaeologists in preserving these sites so preserving the past so that we can understand it but that past is also having an impact on the future as well. So it's it's a very interesting juxtaposition of how the landscape works with people.
3: Yeah, I, th- I think that there is a long historical point here. The first, the first one is 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 what we knew and where, when we knew it. Actually, um, even though we, we we often think Clement Reed as the start of this, it's not true. He was summarising evidence from at least fifty or sixty years beforehand. The fact that um, H.G. Wells in eight, in the late eight nineties wrote a, a short story, a story of the Stone Age, which was based. Out and recognised the lands um, that were underneath the North Sea is is something. The other point, which goes on from from, from the, the last comment, um, is 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 about what you you know what it is and what it what it all means for us. The first thing is we are looking at totally unexplored countries. Where else could you? I mean, where
0: else in the world? In the,
3: no, where where else in the world mm-hmm. could you could you could you find complete rivers, lakes, m- hills, and valleys that are, that have never been mapped before, um, uh, that that had human occupation in? And what does it mean for us at the moment? Well, it clearly at the moment it clearly means something. Um, the there there has been quite a lot of interest in the area of Dogland in literary terms recently, and of course it's the last time that man modern man experienced climate change to the extent that we are likely to experience in the future. It was not anthropogenic that's certain but nonetheless when the Great Plains were inundated people moved out. They had probably places to move there was probably suffering I feel even though yeah, Many, no, much no, of the time, it was may not have been realised that there, there was suffering, and you know we don't have those plains anymore, and all our populations are on the coastlines, just like they were in the Mesolithic, I would suggest, and there is something for at least for us all to ponder upon.
0: Getting an idea of it at the time, could we say the Thames was a tributary of the Rhine and things like that? Was that that joined up uh, landscape? There was a, well, some of this is a deep. Deep, deep <laughs> his, yeah. his, his, so history. you are being pointed at. I
2: am being pointed at. Yes, <laughs> so I'm digging back into my geological knowledge mm-hmm. here, so, but we know that um, the 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 rivers, the old river systems, were flowing northwards at the time. They were building this big delta out. Um, Um, towards the northeast that had a very gentle dip. It would have been a very big, broad coastline, very sandy. Um, And we know that that was being built out before the last ice age came back in, and rivers were flowing north. So it's actually the, the last ice age... It impacted not only the landscape in by forming these big hill features and some of these big pits and scouring things out but that's also when a lot of the river systems started changing their course because of the influence of the ice and the loading and where where the sea was and where the sea wasn't at the time
0: the idea of the, the dogger bank area and the doggerland being a land bridge persisted for some time when did that get blown away
1: uh, that's definitely a uh... Yeah, a bugbear of mine. I think the term land bridge is really, I mean, it's used quite a lot often to describe submerged landscapes, particularly when they're joining <coughs> two land masses. But it's quite unhelpful, I think. Um, I, Bryony Coles has brought this up in her 90s paper, you know, and it, it's this idea that people were maybe standing in northern France and they wanted to go to Britain and they crossed this bridge that was the southern North Sea. It's this crazy idea to think that people at the time would have viewed these landscapes as anything other than. The landscape that they lived within, so it's um, it's quite a reductive term, I think. It, um, yeah, it,
3: it, it, and it's been problematic. I mean, yeah, I reme- no, exactly. remember being asked when did the land bridge break, break? just after I left university a hundred odd years ago. Um, it it, it <laughs> has deflected our attention. Yeah. The fact that it was so difficult to work in the, in these areas, it, it, with a, a, a few notable exceptions, Roger Jacobi the great Mesolithic archaeologist, no, was was, was one of those, but it it allowed archaeologists around Europe to complacently forget about what was underneath the North Sea. They got on with the easy bits on land and they constructed a history which was only partial. And the damage I I suspect it has done for a period which is clearly so critical in the formation of the modern world is significant
0: and we we continue what, what to live with done? it i'm have slightly lost the they did damage to our understanding yes because because if you, if you only looked at the hinterlands
3: how could you understand the the, the entirety of um the history of northwest
1: europe yeah, because our language is really important so if you talk about something like it's just a language it's just a a route way where people moved through to go from one landscape to the other then you you stop yourself properly thinking and discussing these things these these points are just brushed aside they're not really they don't become part of our academic discourse we don't we don't push them any further because it's just a land bridge so in that way i think human it's been it's been destructive to the discipline yes yeah
3: Uh, and and we're only now beginning to 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 recover from that in some sense now technology has helped us the accessibility of vast seismic data sets has been a complete game changer but that's only been really for archaeologists, um, in the last decade, that we've been able to do it, but we've got this these l- massive areas. And do remember, the 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 archaeology of uh, the, the Mesolithic archaeology of Europe and Britain is different. There are significant differences between these areas. There's a gradient, a cultural gradient, and we've missed this big chunk in the middle to explain what is going on around the edges. Mm.
1: Those big questions about it for the Mesolithic—it's about what you know, what yeah. is missing in these areas—and yeah. for the earlier periods, it's about um, where do we, where are these people coming from? They're moving from Europe. Do we see different types of technologies coming from different parts of Europe? And and so having, being able to engage with sites that are, are in this big area, big piece of the jigsaw that we're missing, um, would really be very helpful to answering those questions. So we're just—it's just our entire record is truncated. So everything we're talking about really is kind of biased by it.
0: But then, do you expect quite soon to bulk out your theories with, with, many, with more facts and discoveries?
1: Yes,
3: I think we really are at a cusp. The, we've, we, we've got to the point that we can map these areas. We have a moderate idea of the chronology Though still much mm-hmm. still needs to be done, we have a problem in 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 understanding the significance of some changes um but but nonetheless, we're at the point that we will be able to identify areas of cultural interest mm-hmm. and we will be able to rec- recover data. It is coming
2: I think we're we're moving into into a time period now where everyone is very much working in a much more cross-disciplinary manner. Yeah. So when we're starting to look at um, constructing, say, an offshore wind farm, we have to work with archaeologists. We have to work with biologists. We look at the environments, past and present, to see what's being affected. So we're we're finding these sites because these sites are actively being looked for now rather than just... Companies coming in and putting a development in place because it happens to be handy. We're looking to actively preserve these sites and, and work out our history. I,
3: I, I think that, that's right. And you can go back to Clement Reed here <laughs> because back in when he, he wrote his book Submerged Forest in 1913, he did actually say there are there are there there is a tendency to put science into little boxes, mm. and there are areas which cross over these debatable areas which tend to be ignored. You know, in this area, in the in the, in the uh, within the submerged forests and the landscapes there, he did actually point out. He said, you know, oh, um, geologists say they're too recent to be of interest, and archaeologists say they're they're, they're too geological to be of interest. And he said, both will pass on, and they did, yep. for the best part of sixty or seventy years. Okay. And and it's it's the in the large
0: interdisciplinary teams which are now making a difference. I think our producer is. Pawing at the ground to come in. Sorry. Do you want tea or coffee? You a coffee, oh, please. Tea
2: coffee would be lo- lovely. Tea, tea
1: coffee. please. Thank tea. You. In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. We all live in a digital world. How we work, how we play, the way we live, navigate the world, morals, laws, memories. Even how we generate a thought and we share it with someone. These are all filtered, stored and sorted by the technology in our devices. In the cloud and even in the pavement beneath our feet. So we have to ask, how is the technological world shaping us as people? I'm Alex Kretosky, and I want to introduce you to The Digital Human, the podcast that tells the stories of being human in the digital age. Subscribe to us on BBC Sounds.